Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. I don't know if this is going to be the last Tech Meme Ride Home Experience of the year, um, but certainly it's it's the one in which we are going to culminate things and uh, give you kind of like an overview of some of the top tech stories um, as chosen by you and chosen by me and Brian. Um, but before we get there, um, Let's see. Do we want to? Do we want to bring up the special guys first, or Brian? Did you yeah, want to like go, chat I, about I don't, first? I don't have. I don't have. Do you want to just dive right yeah, in? Go. Okay. Let's go. Well, you know, one thing that I will say, um, as as many listeners probably know, I've I've been deeply um, red pilled. I think I, I forget the colors at this point. It's it's so <laughs> I'm like <laughs> weeks in all. now. Um, I, I I took them all. Right. I took multiples of each, and there's been so much happening in the nft web3 world i don't know if like everyone is just trying to like get everything done before they go on vacation before the end of the year whatever it is but you know we had like the pepsi mic drop thing which was kind of a debacle and then we've had a few other uh drops since then we had nike acquiring artifact studios which brian mentioned so there's been a lot of i guess new stuff coming out there's been um acquisitions for both talent and for tech um there's been new products and new platforms and picks and shovels coming into the space but one of the things that kind of brings a number of the topics that we've talked about uh, talked about on the show together um is the launch of spatial and spatial actually it's sort of funny how this all came together i forget even i, I don't know I, I worked with anand um at google actually um and he unfortunately is not here right now, but we've got uh, his, his, I don't know what to call you guys, like his... His shit shooters. His, his shit shooters, yeah. exactly. <laughs> his internet shit shooters to come uh, at his behest to tell us about their recent launch. So they had reached out to me um, for their product hunt launch, but meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, they were launching this whole sort of like pivot into the metaverse. They've been in the metaverse for a long time, um, but really shifting towards... Web3, um, towards NFTs, towards all this other stuff. And it's been, I would say, a long time coming. So we wanted to bring them on here, um, you know, one, to congratulate you guys about your launch, and then two, to kind of get your perspective on what has been going on in the space and what you take away, I guess, from like this year. But before we do that, how about you guys introduce yourselves, tell us who you are, your names, maybe a little bit of background um, very quickly, and, um, and then we'll talk about what you guys launched. I love it. Jake, you want to kick us off? Yeah, let's go. Um, sorry, everybody. Jake Steinerman. I am the director of community at Spatial. I've uh, been in the XR space for about 10 years, um, working um, actually in enterprise and on um, AR software uh, for a bit and joined the Spatial team in the last year. So it's to, to be here talking about NFTs and Web3 is like crazy exciting and not where I expected to be if you asked me a year ago. So it's like, it's like to be here. I love it. And uh, just to make things even more confusing, I am Jacob Lowenstein, um, somewhat similar names. So I'm Spatial's head of business. So I run like our marketing partnerships and growth. Been with Spatial for about three years, was an investor at Samsung before that, uh, and kind of got into the, the metaverse sort of world when I was a grad student at MIT, founded the hackathon over at the Media Lab and some other cool stuff. Uh, also have the honor of being, being on a panel with Alex Atala from OpenSea in 2018, where I said something like, quote, um, I don't understand why collectibles have to be decentralized. <laughs> NFTs are never going to happen. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was super wrong. Uh, and that was three years ago. So you should believe absolutely nothing I say. You know, the it. best advocates for things are those who have all the haterade and say no to the thing and then eventually get into the space and like, this is amazing. 
<laughs> it truly, it truly was like I, my eyes were open because I remember like thinking about this in 2018, and I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of cool, but this is sort of like you know the like the economics I'm seeing in games, and then there's blockchain underneath it, but there's so many problems that need to be worked out, and like you know who's not going to trust a big centralized tech company? Like why does this have to be decentralized? And then apparently a lot can happen in three years that <laughs> very big cultural shifts and then suddenly you wake up and you're like, Oh, I kind of, I get it now. It's actually very good that this stuff is decentralized. So, you know, it took me a little time to learn, but we got there. Nice. And I'm Tyrone Webb. I'm the community evangelist for spatial. I'm an artist that uh, my life was changed using spatial and, and now I'm working with them to bring as many creatives on board as possible. I'd love to have everyone experience some of the same things I did by using spatial to show off my art and what I do. So I like to say I own a global art gallery because of spatial. That's awesome. And how recently did you um, get involved with these guys? Uh, well, I've been using Spatial since March, but as they progressed, the most wonderful thing about it was the fact that every time I, as an artist, did something in the space before it was meant for artists, I would say to them, hey, you should do this and you should do this. And they were so quick to turn around and give it. And then that's when I started showing it to friends that were artists. And before you know it, you know, it was maybe, what, October is when I actually officially started working for Spatial, but I've been working with them since March. It was a no-brainer. Chris, can I give just a little bit of context here um, for yep. when, whenever people are listening? Because I might put this out next week uh, or this mm -hmm. weekend. I don't know. So just to be clear, um, the story that I did about Spatial and their pivot was the Tuesday, December 14th uh, episode, uh, I think the second half of the show. But that's that's a good way to tee it up. So um, am I right in understanding? I'm actually reading my words from the script uh, yesterday. Um, that Spatial was originally designed to be an AR or VR or something uh, startup, but targeting the enterprise, right? So the, the thing that I always say, where, well, eventually everybody on the factory floor is going to be wearing headsets. Everyone on a construction site is going to be wearing headsets. Is that is that what you guys were doing originally? Yes. So it's a funny story. Let me tell you what happened. So Spatial kind of started off, you know, and, and, and Chris knows Anand for a little while, like Spatial kind of started off as almost like a little lab. Like, you know, Anand and Jinha are two super dope designers. Anand sold his last company to Google. Jinha was at MIT and then was a lead designer at Samsung. And, and they were both just trying to figure out like, and if you, if you remember like back in 2015, 2016, like there was a lot of excitement about VR and AR, but you know, if people ask the question like, well, what do you actually use this for? It was like a pretty hard thing to answer. Like people were excited. They thought it was cool. Weren't really sure where the utility was. And so they just did like a ton of experiments trying to figure out like, where is this really going to, add value to people's lives relative to like the next best thing, which may not even be in VR and AR. And at the end of 2018, like they basically came out with their first product, uh, which was an enterprise collaboration solution. So this was like before COVID, but the idea was, Hey, like really big companies. And this is, if you think about this, this was like the time that like WeWork was getting really popular too. Um, I can't believe I'm talking about this like this was so long ago. COVID really messes with like my perception of time. But 2018, in the land before time, uh, there was this whole big thing where big companies were really struggling because their workforces were getting increasingly distributed and people were miserable when they were remote and having to do all their work over video conference. And so using the original Microsoft HoloLens, uh, Spatial built a 
essentially like an alpha product where people could create lifelike avatars from a selfie using machine learning and then work together as if they were literally in the same room. And it was truly the, the coolest shit you've ever seen. Um, you would literally be wearing this headset that was unbelievably uncomfortable, but while you were wearing it, uh, you really felt like, you know, a bunch of people were in the room with you. And that took us on a pretty wild ride. We ended up getting on stage with Satya Nadella uh, for the launch of the Microsoft HoloLens 2 in 2019. And we really dove in, particularly on the augmented reality side. And like we closed big deals. You know, we had some really big customers like Pfizer and, and Nestle and these kind of like big fortune 1000s that all had distributed workforces. And then COVID hit. And that was when things kind of started to change. Because what basically happened was like, the supply chain for headsets got really disrupted. Um, and by that time, we had also launched in VR, but not a lot of people had headsets yet. And a lot of people were really intrigued by the idea of like working together and feeling like they were in the same room, um, but they didn't really want to put on a headset. And so we kind of, as an experiment, put out web and mobile versions of Spatial. So the mobile came out like second half of 2020, web came out in 2021. And at the beginning of 2021, 60% of our usage was VR. And now 80% of our usage is on web and mobile. So basically, like once people got the chance to use, you know, have this kind of immersive experience without the headset, they were just like, man, this is so convenient. Uh, I really just want to click a link and jump be in here on my existing device. So that was like the first big change. And then the second really big change was once people started really using us on web and mobile, this huge shift happened where like it stopped being really like enterprises knocking at our door. And suddenly like artists just kind of found them, found their way to the platform organically. We're still not totally sure how uh, it started with um, this, this amazing artist, Yassine, and he creates this series, uh, this character, Elix, and he's a, he's a big artist. And then Federico Klopis, this really big NFT sculpture artist and, and Harlan Perez were kind of the next two that followed. And they started posting these like ateliers they made in spatial because you can upload a custom environment and suddenly, like, we went a little viral and our usage just, like, totally swung in the other direction. And, like, once the swing started, like, it just became really obvious that, like, we had accidentally invented this thing that was way more useful for this other use case. And so, finally, uh, literally two days ago, we, like, made the, the – we call it an evolution. We don't use the cough, cough keyword, but uh, <laughs> we, our evolution – uh, really was to take the platform and, and broaden it and focus it more on on creators because we found that um, being able to create really beautiful, immersive experiences around their art and around their content allowed them to build community that was really tight and allowed them to sell their works much more easily. Um, and And so that's like the maybe like long and short version of how we went from like, helping pharmaceutical companies to being an NFT art platform. That's, I mean, what, what a journey. And in some ways, I think what's so interesting about what you guys are doing is how you're both like, like riding all of these different waves and being able to move so quickly with the development of the technology, um, whether it's, you know, VR or AR or whether it's NFTs or the rest. And, trying to sort of, you know, make sense from a product perspective of, you know, what do people actually want in this space? And it feels like you guys are probably trotting on, you know, familiar ground for at least people, let's say, you know, in meta or um, certainly in the HoloLens world. 
And I guess what I'm wondering about, you know, you said something about artists and community. And so I'm curious if you could unpack that and how that is actually going. Because one of the things that I've noticed in getting involved in more and more NFT drops, you know, is the need to one, either be on Discord like constantly, which on the one hand is efficient, but isn't very engaging or doesn't like leave you with a sense of, you know, like what, what you know, VR or um, those metaverse spaces are supposed to provide is more of a sense of presence. Um, so on the one hand, you're in Discord with all this cacophony going on and all this stuff that's hard to follow, whereas when you bring spatial connection to it, virtual uh, spatial presence, now suddenly you have a sense for how many people are there, what they're doing, and how they're connecting. So I'd love to understand more about how artists are connecting um, with their community in spatial. Um, and then, like, is the hard thing really about distribution? Like, why is Facebook... Or why does Facebook seem so convinced about uh, Horizon workplaces and, and where that's going? It just it feels like you guys would be able to give us some insights about what's going on in the rest of the industry as well. Jake, Jake, why don't and uh, Tyrone, why don't you speak to the community piece, and then I'll I'll follow up on like the Facebook Horizon piece at the end there. Yeah, it's been super interesting to um, you know to, to be in discords. I mean, when we you know, started our community. Um, online, you know, in early 2020, was on Slack, and now um, we're actually, um, you know, sunsetting our Slack and, and moving entirely to, to to our Discord. But I think it's we're we're trying to, you know, balance this path of um, having. If you were in our Twitter Spaces earlier today, we actually were doing half of it um, in spatial itself and half of it in Twitter Spaces, while at the same time, you know, having it was very disorienting, about, like. There was like a Periscope thing that popped up and the Twitter mobile app for when I was in the spatial space. And by the way, for people who still don't have a, an idea for what spatial looks like, it is very much like sort of a second life experience, you know, with like, well, at least in this case, you have no legs, um, avatars, and you're in just a virtual world and you can move around and you can talk and you can clap and you can interact with art pieces and put stuff up. But it's largely in the browser and it's actually quite performant. So continue yeah exactly yeah we'll try and um pin a tweet up there something so people can see it but yeah it was like fascinating we had like people in spatial itself in our public park which we just launched people in twitter spaces and then we were live streaming out also so people who were in twitter spaces who didn't jump into the web you know to the to spatial in all the different platforms we're on could see um what was happening and then people in the discord when the drop happened um talking about the drop all at the same time so from like a community management perspective like definitely gets like pretty crazy um but i think what's what's interesting you don't get out of something like discord is more of that sense of community and i feel it's, it's a little less overwhelming when like you can find people in a space maybe maybe you're at an art gallery that you um you find interesting like someone else and you're talking to someone more on one-on-one -on -one versus discord can definitely feel pretty overwhelming <laughs> like crazy overwhelming especially when you're in a lot of servers um, so sometimes, you know, we sometimes see ourselves as almost like a, a 3d discord, um, of sorts and, but with the ability to have like portals to, to pop between different, you know, community lobbies and things like that. So even some of these discord communities are starting to pop up with their like spatial lobby basically, and they can have, you know, people, other artists or whoever in that community can drop in portals to their own galleries and start to build like their own, own like mini metaverse for like lack of a better term um but it's it's definitely been pretty pretty crazy and tyrone i mean you you're in a lot of the different discords kind of you, you've been plugged into these communities for a long time so yeah feel free to yeah i would 
I would definitely break it down as to how community becomes the conversation we have when we talk about NFTs and we talk about being artists now, because it's significantly different than, than I thought it would be. So I was a traditional gallery artist, right? And I started out doing that work to put in galleries. And when I encountered Spatial, I had the opportunity to hang my work in infinite wall space, right? What, what mediums were you using as a traditional I, artist? I, I used spray paint. Okay, cool. Yes. So what it came down to is, is I have this infinite wall space that I can hang my art up in. And then I started learning about NFTs. So the idea was, this, okay, I have all these really great images of my work. Let me put them together in a collection, do the whole open sea thing. But then I was, I was without any community. It was just an artist trying to navigate the space. And then what I found is, is that by utilizing spatial, I could go into Twitter spaces and tell other people about the, the spatial and send them into my gallery. And then at the same time in these Twitter space communities, I was able to tell them my story because they asked. And it was really nice. And, you know, when we talk about dropping alpha, a lot of times it's positive experiences that people are having. And I just started telling my story. And then I woke up two days later and, you know, one of my pieces had sold. And I was the first person to sell a piece of art out of a spatial gallery. Then oh, after nice. that, then after that, it was 19 more sold that day. Wow. And it changed and it changed my life. Right. From that moment, I suddenly didn't have to worry as much. But what I realized is I was be not necessarily beholden, but I found myself going back into that Twitter space and spending and I still hang out with the same people every day if I can. And so from that point, I realized that there was this group that was willing to lift up creatives. And then I was able to point them in the spatial and suddenly everybody's putting together their spots because it isn't just for artists. It's also for collectors. All these people are spending lots of money on these things that they covet greatly. Now they have a space they can go in and put them in and invite people in and show off what they got. So that was huge. So as I progressed from that point, it was like, well, let me get in the Discord because there's other places where community's happening. And then you realize you're part of an NFT group and you buy into something and boy, people are just going. I'm part of Bears Deluxe. You can see from my PFP, probably one of the best Discord chords I've ever seen. So community unto itself is just about being able to help each other to progress within this space. I mean, you're going to have all different use cases, but as far as I'm concerned, there are so many creatives out there that could use this extra wall space. So that became my job is reaching out and bringing them in and the projects as well too, right? They all have roadmaps. So now we want to add spatial to the roadmaps. So, okay. Like, uh, we've got a few more minutes, and I want to understand a bit about, I guess, like, the roadmap for, for spatial. You know, I think it's, what you're saying is so useful in kind of understanding, like, the artist's journey as it has changed and morphed in 2021. Like, it just, it feels like this was, like, a watershed year for, especially, like, visual artists to be able to find and connect with an internet community that actually wants to buy their work. And so, rather than being restricted to... um you know, uh, a, a certain geographic coordinate where you can put up your art physically or having to do gallery shows where you're, you know, tra uh, traipsing your art all over the place or going to museums. Now, literally, of course, people all over the world can find your art and can become patrons in a, uh, well, in a way that really right. you, the internet, you know, enables and provides. One of the things that you said, though, is that you're hoping, or I guess thinking that spatial becomes one of the places where you might want to exhibit. But I'm imagining and starting to see that there are a few different competitive kind of, you know, gallery environments that are being created in this moment. And one of the things that I'm trying to understand is, you know, is the idea that Spatial becomes the one and only sort of like Facebook of, you know, art NFTs for this next era? Or 
will spatial be part of the metaverse as it's been described with interoperability and the ability to go from you know one spatial portal to um uh, like the vivaverse or some other place like that that also offers a three-dimensional immersive uh, art gallery experience this is like the question and an amazing question so i'm gonna give you a couple of of like important and you know you guys might not know but yeah like what are your thoughts about this what are the the things that are blocking this and enabling this so first off like we believe as a like mantra like literally like write it on the wall get it tattooed like in an open and interoperable metaverse like we think the, the there's a fundamental change happening in the internet that is structurally about moving away from centralization and aggregation and gatekeeping towards a world that is far more creator-owned and creator-friendly. And that, by definition, means that, like, Spatial, to fulfill its mission, needs to be investing resources in being interoperable and super-friendly with other platforms out there. So, like, when you, you know, we're using the word, like, competitors, like, we we don't see anyone is a competitor. So like if people talk about cyber or crypto voxels or, or Decentraland, like these are just amazing other platforms that we also love to spend time on. And we just think everyone does a different piece of this really, really well. Right. And so like for us, I think where we're really, really focused is like, you know, we have a pretty, pretty good design background. Um, we're really good at UX, you know, like Peter, our head of design was head of design Google Hangouts. And I talked about it before. So I think that what Spatial is going to be really good at is like being a really, really good entry point into the metaverse. Like for people that have no idea what they're doing, like the goal for Spatial is that you can get into the metaverse in one click. It should be insanely easy. And then you should be able to start participating in a type of like eye popping or mind blowing experience right away. And it should all just work like in the browser on mobile because those are the devices people have. And like, that's, that's what we're going for. That being said, like we are in active conversations with other platforms about enabling things like deep linking to other platforms. So you could be in spatial and create a portal to, you know, crypto voxels or Somnium or whatever it is. And like, that should be really, really easy. And if it's not, we think that's just bad as like a principle because we want this to be good for users and good for creators. And like, we, why would we interfere with what will ultimately be better for your user experience? Uh, the second way this is manifested like very actively in our roadmap is is what you see today. So for example, today we did our first NFT drop of a 3D environment with utility. This is another area where we differ with some of our, our other you know peers. Um, some of our peers, for example, like sell land. They just sell like plots of land and it's like, you know, there's not inherent utility to that land up front. You kind of have to like build on it. We don't do that because like, again, like the user we're really focused on are people that, you know, don't want to go and build, build something from scratch, but want something that have utility built in. And so today we did an auction of a, a gallery space called Museo that from the get-go people could buy and immediately start populating it with their art and then immediately start inviting people in to, to check it out in exhibition form. Um, and the really cool thing about this drop is that like the 3D file is stored on Arweave, all the metadata is on chain. So like if spatial dies tomorrow, like that asset is yours. And even today, you could take that 3D asset and put in whatever platform you want. Like we are not stopping you from doing that. So we are like all in on really making this decentralized and putting the power in the buyer and the creator 
to go and do what they want with this. And so like, that's the state of things today. Like where things are going, like there are problems to be solved to enable the interoperable metaverse, some very serious ones. I would say like probably the two most obvious that we're like trying to get on sort of um, working groups going to help standardize some of this. But I would say like avatars and computing power are two really hot topics or identity and computing power. Identity in the sense that like, um, you know, if I create an identity, I want to be able to take that identity to whatever metaverse, right? I don't want to have to create like a separate avatar profile, whatever, on every different metaverse. I mean, just frankly, it's a really big pain in the ass. And right now, like some platforms have their own, you know, identity components. Some use some like unified ones. Like there's a great company out there, Ready Player Me, who we really like that has, you know, they're integrated with a bunch of different platforms. And, and we have our own right now, but I think we want to move away from that next year to something that's more integrated with other platforms. And then the second thing is just computing power. Like um, a lot of other platforms use, you know, like voxelated graphics, you know, everything kind of looks like it's, it's sort of like Lego, like the Lego movie. Um, we don't. So like our approach is that things are really, you know, high end and, 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 you know, quite beautiful aesthetically. Um, there's nothing wrong with voxelated graphics. It's its own really cool aesthetic, but like, the appeal of voxelated graphics is that like it makes it a lot easier to render 3d stuff so like an environment that you buy that's optimized for spatial just from a like a like logistical standpoint may not be able to be uploaded to another platform because it just doesn't support that format or like it's it's not ready to render something of that size so we got to get unified standards we need some i think some middleware that helps convert files and and make it really easy to bring one you know file into another and we need some type of unified identity but I'll say that like spatial is, is super active on all fronts and trying to to push them forward, and that's that's how we believe the metaverse uh, should be. And and one other thing I should note is that uh, the other thing that makes us a little different than some of our peers is that we're social, uh, like synchronously social. So you could hang out with like fifty people in a spatial room that you buy. It's not a single player experience, and and that's an area where we're really going to invest uh, moving forward. So I know that was like a speech. I'll I'll shut up, but hopefully that answered. No, the actually, that was that was very helpful. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about, it, like you have this, um, this feels a little bit like legacy from where you guys came from in terms of being like an enterprise tool. And I think this will be the last question that I um, am curious to get your thoughts on before we shift into um, the top tech stories. Um, but like the spatial that was targeted at enterprise. It's either presumed or at least started with the notion that you would create this, uh, you know, kind of version of yourself, this digital doppelganger, um, by taking a selfie, and then that selfie would be um, uh, placed onto a 3D model or a 3D mesh, and then you would sort of express yourself with a pretty accurate, you know, depiction of yourself, or at least, uh, you know, uh, aspirationally. Mine kind of looks like, you know, uh, I don't know, Repo Man or something. So, you know, nah, yeah. you look great. <laughs> you can see it. It's not great. Anyways, um, point. My point though is both the the kind of I don't know metaverse at large, and more broadly, like the NFT community space has a lot more I think um, support for anonymity, pseudonymity, and for alternative ways of expressing yourself through you know non kind of IRL um, you know baselines. So I guess my question is kind of about that. You know, you're talking about how you want to be interoperable and you want people to be able to express themselves and identity and representation and signing in once or having one or multiple wallets to represent all the different 
both facets of, of you and your life and your personality and your collections may be important and necessary, but also from an on-ramp perspective, this gets pretty overwhelming pretty quickly. So if you guys were to peer into your 3D crystal ball and think about you know 2022, what are you imagining is going to happen from a consumer adoption perspective? Like, what are the things that are really blocking that? And what's going to change in the environment that's going to really open this up? You know, presuming you guys just pivoted your business in this direction, um, that's going to make it much more accessible to a broader audience. And then we'll get into the big stories of 2021. Oh, man, that is such a good question. I think, like, there are a couple of big trends, I think, happening right now. So I think one is, we really do believe the like on ramp to the metaverse is on web and mobile, and so I think that like VR adoption will continue in evolutionary fashion, but I don't see it as like in 2022 a meaningful factor. Um, okay. I think that I think that um, like the the adoption of NFTs is going to get broader, um, not just in terms of art and collectibles and other things it's used for, but like. We're also starting to see demand, much more demand for things like using NFTs for ticketing and gating of certain spaces. And I think that like the coin basification of it, which is, I think probably some people think has good aspects of it and some people are more critical of it. But Do you mean you specifically know, about Coinbase or do you mean how Coinbase has made crypto easier for many more people? That awesome. So it's it's both. So I think okay. literally like the fact that like Coinbase has such a huge user base and are getting into this from a marketplace perspective, I think is going to like open this up uh vastly to a much wider do, audience do you think and sorry then, I, this I think, is this is i think an important point because OpenSea is sort of like the coinbase of nfts currently but coinbase is currently or about to launch their own nft marketplace as well as incorporate nfts into their browser extension so like uh, i know like i'm asking sort of broadly about where this goes next but in terms of competitive um, energies in the space. I'm curious about your perception between you know, OpenSea and Coinbase, given the need to sort of or have the Coinbaseification of NFTs and, and all this um, metaverse stuff. I think, I mean, so first off, shout out to OpenSea, great partner, mm -hmm. but I also like, I think we'll speak just like thinking out loud. I think like Everyone, I think everyone is providing a different utility and kind of coming at this a different way. I think like undoubtedly Coinbase is going to put competitive pressure on OpenSea. And I think um, they're going to do that in two ways is my guess. One is because like you can already see that they're very aggressively courting some like awesome projects onto the platform that I think are going to be very popular. And number two is I think the onboarding process for Coinbase uh, it will just be easier because people are already on the platform yeah, yeah. Um, and they don't need to use that. I mean, we, again, we like love MetaMask, but like for your average person, yeah. it's not necessarily like it, it takes a, a somewhat savvy person, I would say, to like get onto OpenSea. It's an amazing platform. But like if I told my parents, hey, go buy an NFT, I'm not sure they'd be able to figure it out. But I think they could probably figure out Coinbase. Now, like that being said, like OpenSea is making incredible strides every day with improving their platform. So I think it's just going to be net good for consumers to have them pushing each other. Um, and at the same time, like there are other platforms that look at OpenSea and even say like OpenSea is like too, you know, they, they think of OpenSea almost like a Coinbase in and of itself. And they think things should be more decentralized and, you know, more hardcore. So I think that a lot of these platforms will will probably coexist. I think the thing about the metaverse is like, I very strongly believe that like, it by definition cannot be like a winner take all because there are like important communities that hold a lot of power that like genuinely will resist it. And I think like they're influential and will point people in different directions. 
Um, and so I think Coinbase will have a big role to play, but I think OpenSea will continue to as well. And I think like our goal is to sort of, I think, be interoperable with both, which is to say, like, if you're a bit more savvy and you're coming from OpenSea, then great, like use MetaMask and, you know, bring your NFTs into spatial that way. And if, you know, you have your NFTs stored in like a custodial wallet via, you know, via Coinbase, like it should be easy to bring those into spatial as well. And I think like that will ultimately be good for both companies and I think good for consumers who will be able to sort of like pick whichever solution fits them the most. Because there are going to be people that don't want to use uh, Coinbase because they ask for too much identifying information and they don't trust Coinbase to manage their assets. And for all sorts of, I think, justified reasons that motivate decentralization in the first place. And so that's why I don't see Coinbase being an open sea killer, just an alternative. Awesome. Well, Jake, Jacob, is it Taylor? I'm sorry, Tyrone. Going by, huh? Tyrone? Tyrone. Tyrone. Yeah. <laughs> because you're fine spray paint art uh, currently to me. So <laughs> um, I want to thank you guys for coming. Um, you're more than welcome to stick around. Um, I'd actually love to get some of your perspectives on some of the things we're going to talk about. Um, oh, yeah. Before I make that transition, though, I just want to, what are the best places for people to both follow you and then also learn more about Spatial? Yeah. Jake, what are the best places? Uh, I don't know. What are they? Oh, yeah, the Discord. Um <laughs> I mean, that's oh, I would definitely encourage people to join our Discord, like all good uh, projects these days. Uh, What's the link? Uh, Discord.gg slash spatial. You can also just search spatial within Discord. We're in the directory there. Um, uh, follow us on Twitter. Um, and we also, if you want to learn more and like see visuals um, of what spatial looks like, I put a tweet at the top that's got the, the live stream from earlier so you can see what was yep. going down. Um, but we just relaunched our new website, which is awesome. And then you can just use spatial for free. So just go to spatial.io and yeah, it's, it's actually, it's, it's cool. Like I, I, I got in, I set it up. Um, I pinned a tweet, um, where you can see that I'm able to grab my NFTs from my wallet and start putting them into my own little room. And so hopefully I'll set that up and then invite you guys in. You can check it out. Um, any other resources or, or places that people one, know about? Yeah, one more one yep. more super important thing to say, which is, um, so our second NFT drop is happening mm. tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you go to spatial.io, scroll down like just a half click, you'll see it's called Bozo Island. It is an incredible, incredible space. Uh, you could use it as gallery, exhibition space, community space. Um, only 64 editions are going to be available from uh, Renaud Futterer, an incredible artist. Um, and so that will go, that will start minting tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern and uh, Museo, which went went out today, sold out in 13 minutes. So if you're interested, definitely try and get on that pretty quickly because um, there seems to be a lot of interest in these spaces, particularly because there's so much utility behind them and you can use them to host these amazing events. So spatial.io. Um, and you'll find a link on our website to to get to Bozo Island 5 p.m. tomorrow. Awesome. Eastern, two p.m. Yeah. today. Congrats on the lunch, guys. Congrats on uh, the product on lunch and for the drop today um, and all the stuff you guys have going on. Um, as I said, thank you. feel free to and, stick around. Thank you so much for the love, man. And, and thanks yeah. for hunting us. You're amazing. And thanks for hosting such a kick-ass uh, Twitter space. This is going to awesome. be super interesting. Definitely going to stick around for a bit. Good. Thank you. All right, Brian. You wanna you wanna tee this up? And bring up our first guest. Yeah. So um, I uh, obviously we solicited folks for ideas of what the biggest tech stories of the year of 2021 were. I, um, I've got some ideas. I know Chris has some ideas, but 
I see at least two people in the room that um, actually sent in submissions over the air table ahead of time. And in order to mix things up a bit, um, Chris O'Brien uh, is in the room, and he his question was about something uh, on a different topic. So let's start there. I'm sure we will come back to Web3 and NFTs and crypto and all that. But uh, Chris, what do you think uh, was the biggest tech story of the year? Hey, how's it going? Uh, so I, I think um, the thing that's going to be sending ripples for not just this year, but at least a uh, year to 18, 24 months out is going to be supply chain stuff. And, uh, you know, like the whole like ever given getting stuck and us all nihilistically laughing at it until it <laughs> bit us in the butt. Uh, <laughs> until your stuff didn't show up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and yeah, so like I work in uh, enterprise slash carrier IT. I'm a network engineer and uh, we, uh, you know, I've been in the industry for 20 ish years. So I've seen a couple of waves of I, you know, I lived through the the dot com crash and like the fallout from that and i lived through the fallout of the uh the 0809 crash uh so i've like you know i've experienced these waves of of um of uh you know like deferred maintenance on you know on running these gigantic networks and we were uh where i work currently we were you know suffering from that and we were like just about to like make a serious push we 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 did a, a round of of uh of uh equipment renewal at during the pandemic when we had the opportunity to and uh we were about to do another serious round and come to find out now we can't get any equipment and uh <laughs> it's uh it's going to be a serious issue for you know carrier grade networks enterprise networks for uh some time to come there's just the chip shortages are so uh so backed up now that it's 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 going to be. Uh, it, I think it's going to seriously hamper a lot of uh, innovation potentially, even even for large scale networks. There's just so little product out there; no one can get their hands on anything. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. One Password. One Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. One Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. One Password lets you securely switch between iPhone. Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get Get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ka-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify transformed ResumeWriters.com from the spaghetti code backend I cobbled together in college to the world-class commerce platform it sits on today. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. Yeah, see, one way to look at this is that this is, you know, a story that goes beyond tech. You know, the fact that... Oh, certainly. You know, there's book shortages and things like that. Um, But... I think to to frame it from a tech perspective is one of the things that this does um, is, you know, for the last 20 years, the idea that, um, I, I mean, you know, things like Moore's Law and, you know, uh, once things reach scale, any product reaches scale, the especially a hardware product, eventually the prices come down and things like that. That's all built on this idea of the abundance of gadgetry and all of the you know, fundamental things that go into making gadgets. And that's something that at least for the last 20 years, especially since, you know, Tim Cook invented uh, the, the the modern supply chain, especially when it comes to electronics and, and tech stuff, that, that, that it was always available. And, and so when you see things like, well, of course, you know, self-driving cars are going to become a thing. Um, but if, you know, Ford can't get chips to make your average sedan right now, right? Well, they don't make sedans, but yeah. Well, there you go. That's a, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That that shows my ignorance about it. taken. Yeah, exactly. But the, the, the idea being that, and, and you know these discussions are happening at all levels where it's not just that com- countries are like, well, we, we need to have manufacturing um, on our shores, especially when it comes to... to the silicon industry and things like that. But also, you know that anybody, an Apple, you know, all the way down to, like you're saying, you know, uh, telecom companies and, and carriers and, and even startups or whatever, you, is, the question is, is this the new normal, right? Was the last 20 years sort of a thing that was too good to last should we assume? Uh, yeah, I definitely think so. Okay, you know what? I, I've been I've been fumfering for a lot. So so tell me, just based on that, do you think that this is the new normal that we can no longer assume that? I mean, okay, one more thing, and then my fumfering's done. You know, we've talked on the show about like what happens if China invades Taiwan or whatever. Like, we wouldn't have new smartphones for years or something. But that doesn't even have to happen. You could have a bad typhoon. And you yeah. wouldn't have smartphones for a couple of years, right? <laughs> it know? happened with RAM in exactly. what, the early 2010s or something, right? So, okay, on, to, to that question, how are people like you thinking about it? Like, is it is it a question of we have to reframe our expectations of what normal is now? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, we're at the, you know, I deal with like enterprise-grade enterprise hardware and 
we're completely at the whim of whatever they can produce. I think I, I've been of the mindset uh, of the belief that the whole just-in-time ordering thing, while it made you know some economic sense for the bottom line of these companies that do everything they do to scratch out every last cent on the bottom line, never made from a technological perspective any sense. Like, you know, if I have a project that I need to scale up, you know, a lot of it is just project planning in the end. And, you know, you, you build into your timelines of any project uh, that, that you're going to, uh, that you're going to roll out, uh, you know, okay, well, it's going to take me X amount of weeks to even dream about getting equipment in, which, you know, in, in the past was, could, could be uh, honestly a couple of months. Uh, and you, you start to build those into your timescales of like, okay, you plan out your year in advance or whatever, and you, you know, plan out when you need to order stuff. But I think, you know, I think there's going to be a huge shift in the way equipment's going to be manufactured, quite honestly. I, I it, this this exposed so much, uh, you know, so like, you know, like there's 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 going to be a point where like, you know, someone has like a, a real issue uh, in like a carrier grade network and they only stock so much of their own, you know, uh, only spare so much of their own equipment out, you know, because you can't carry equipment that's not uh, being realized on the bottom line in, in an enterprise network necessarily. Right. So, you know, you can, you can have some stock, uh, you know, backlogged somewhere, but th th there's, there's like real issues uh, that I think like even bigger networks than that I run, are going to start realizing like we can't operate this way. If I, you know, if I can't get new equipment to build out, uh, you know, a, a new data center that like I have to build something out, uh, and I can't get equipment for half a year, it's, it's not going to be tenable. Uh, and I think as as we start to see, you know, these new talk about new chip fabs popping up uh, onshore, I think we're going to start hearing about. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping, I, I don't know, you know, I don't, don't know anything, but I'm hoping we're going to start to hear that, you know, maybe this idea of just in time manufacturing was, you know, maybe too good to be true. <laughs> right. Or, or, or designed yeah. for a different world. And, and that's what we're realizing. Yeah. Cause what I would point out is, you know, this isn't June of last year. This isn't even 12 months ago. You know, we're we're approaching two years into the pandemic, and it's really biting now, and it's still biting, and it's almost biting the hardest right now. And and when you talk to people about this, oh, this isn't going to get fixed for another two years or more, right? So it's not no. just that a pandemic happened; it's just that um, the pandemic sort of revealed sort of the fragility in the system. Yeah, and then like the wave is really crashing now uh, with a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, in the last couple of months, uh, you've been hearing, you know, about chip shortages and, in, in, you know, the automotive industry in the last couple of months and, and in, you know, in, in the, uh, the tech world too. Uh, and it's like really like the crunch is really on now, which is kind of interesting that, you know, there's been all these waves of, of different, um, you know, like there was toilet paper and there was, you know, soap and there was, you know, hand sanitizer and masks. And it was interesting that they all hit in different times and, for whatever reason, we, we must have just fully exhausted whatever, whatever chip fabs had kind of backlogged, uh, in, in recent times, because it, it's gotten really bad now. And the, the timelines are just pushing out, out and out at this point. Like if I order stuff right now, it's like, it, it almost doesn't make sense because like, there's a possibility I, I won't receive it in the same fiscal year that I bought it in, which is like, you know, 
uh, an accounting nightmare, right? So it's like it's gonna it's gonna cause havoc not just on not being able to you know receive equipment, but like it's gonna start causing even accounting issues, which uh, it's gonna be a headache for someone else, you know. <laughs> it sounds like twenty twenty two is not gonna be great when it comes to like it feels like there's been a lot of. Mm, kind of like optimism you know especially when it comes to talking talking about like inflation and stuff like that that it's going to just like get better or these are temporary things it's like oh you know the pandemic is like almost over it's like mm, these things are all on their own timelines and yeah. it feels like the supply chain thing it you know it's it is like um like an emp that's like gone off and we're still feeling kind of like the waves shock of, waves of it yeah yeah the shock waves uh, afterwards um so it sounds like it's not going to get that much better in 2022. Um, I wanted to bring up Jeremy actually to talk about another thing that's going on as well that's been disruptive, um, I suppose, or maybe it's adjusting. I'm not quite sure. You know, there are a number of R words that have been used to describe what's going on in the labor economy this year, whether it's the resignation, the reconsideration, uh, whatever other words there might be. Um, but there's also kind of like the rearticulation of the relationship between labor um, and and you know the bosses or the companies when it comes to Amazon, when it comes to Starbucks, et cetera. And so Jeremy submitted this um, suggestion that one of the bigger stories uh, this year was actually about that. Jeremy, you want to tell us about that? Yeah, you touched on the uh, the Amazon and Starbucks pieces, which I think Amazon has certainly been stewing for a while, but and but over the course of the past couple of years, especially as people's financial situations changed significantly thanks to uh, pandemic-driven stimulus, is we've seen just a, a significant rise in labor organizing activity. And the, the ones that are getting a lot of attention, yes, Amazon, but not like the tech side of Amazon that we typically, that we typically, talk, that we typically talk about on this show, um, it's you know it, it's it's been it's been brewing at you know at at old line manufacturing businesses, but at the very start of this year, the uh, like the like the first thing out, out of the gate was the Alphabet Workers Union, and I think people are getting starting to get a lot more comfortable with talking about labor issues at work, especially in tech where there's a highly valued highly educated workforce that is starting to take this seriously and see uh and see labor issues as important in that context and and jeremy do you have any personal exposure to this or do you know people who work at these companies because you know i i i will agree with you um that there has been kind of a sea change in terms of attitudes of tech workers towards their tech employers. And in some ways that may be just a function of largesse, you know, now that, you know, Google and uh, Amazon and the rest like are employing hundreds of thousands of people, um, you start to see, you know, some of these fissures change because it's no longer, you know, five or 10,000 people, you know, trying to change the world. Now it's like actually a significant number of people who are dependent upon these firms that are maybe feeling either left out or disenfranchised or that something, you know, ultimately needs to change from the management level. So what is, what is your take on this or your exposure personally to it? So my, so I don't have a lot of personal exposure. I do have mm -hmm. a ton of friends who work for Amazon. Uh, yeah. I do know, I do know someone who was very early in the organizing for Amazon for climate, which was one of the uh, early efforts that came a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and I'm I'm also close with with businesses that have actually 
uh, benefited from the from the labor shortage in like in, in terms of people who were previously like sort of lukewarm on automation, uh, whatever that might mean. Uh, uh, Thinking yep, like yep. yeah, and so like there there are businesses where like hey, this product clearly has value, but like sort of took a while to get people off the sidelines, you know, to actually buy the thing. Now they can't keep up with demand. Like it's because that is like the singular issue is like, can I open the store today? Is my business still going to be operating? And so I think about the stuff that my friends went through, like in the Amazon for climate uh, example, how like maybe Amazon is the wrong example here, but how much would they, would, how much would, would these big companies be willing to tolerate in terms of organizing activity a few years ago and how much are they willing to tolerate now because the pendulum has swung significantly towards labor in terms of who has the power here let me um let me hold my hand up um and and admit that on this show i tend to talk about these things more from the uh you know, sort of the white collar aspect of it, the engineers, because I know who's listening and I'm not saying that only engineers listen and things like that, but like, I tend to cover like, you know, the walkouts at, at Google and, and other places like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one of the things that you're, you're also, you know, hinting at it and, and even you, you bring it up in, in your original submission is that, you know, there's t- a lot of the actual labor organizing is going on in Amazon fulfillment centers is the, you know, the, the people that are the grocery delivery app, uh, you know, deliverers and whatnot. Um, what do you think of something that I brought up on the show a couple times, which is for, especially if we, if we put it in the terms of like the gig economy, um, the idea that maybe that, that to use this phrase that I use all the time again, was an accident of history of about 10 years after the Great Recession, where a lot of businesses, their business models were built on the idea of cheap labor, the idea of I'm doing this as a side gig, and maybe that's no longer tenable anymore. I mean, the, the, what comes to mind is that the, like the, the gig, the quote unquote gig economy folks are in some way sort of caught in the middle here. Like, should there be another category of employee that is like for gig for people who specifically work part-time and turn the app on and off? Um, yeah, I, I think so. But the, like the company seemed to be foreclosing the, um, the ability to do that. But to the extent that they're still an active part of this conversation, they're sort of being, a lot of these employees are sort of being used against the folks who are trying to organize mm. uh, full-time laborers because that one, they represent flexible labor and to, to like, it's, it's hard to say how many people who are in that gig economy workforce are there because they actually value the flexibility and how many are there because it's the only thing they can get. And to some extent, and in both cases, they're like both, both, both of those groups would have some reason to worry. Like, okay, is this lifeline, like this, this survival level lifeline, possibly going to go away if I am dragged into a union vote mm-hmm. and I vote for the union, even though like it might be good. I don't like there is that uncertainty there. Right, we've seen that over and over where union votes go down uh, and are not successful, um, and uh, so. <laughs> On the one hand, I think you're right that there's a ton of 
energy around unionization and and labor right now. And then at the same time, it's sort of, it is bucking a trend or bucking the status quo, which has not been, you know, very uh, labor friendly for the last 20 years too. So um, either, either that is the sea change that we're starting to see happen right now, or um, I don't know. It's, 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 It's it's interesting because the conversation for the last couple of years, I think, in in tech about this was more about like ownership as a part of the culture, like equity ownership as a key part of the culture Mm -hmm. in in tech companies. And then over the past couple of years, people are like, okay, what is equity really? Like, is it a lottery ticket? Is it actual compensation? Like, especially if you're at an early stage startup where your ownership can actually be meaningful and can actually have a real significant impact on changing the fortunes of your life. Uh, the, and then like over the past, over the past year, it's like it, the power swung back to labor, but suddenly a lot of that ownership is probably a lot more valuable, valuable than we, than you, than we were previously thinking about in the last couple of years that these markets have grown so large that, uh, I, I, I'm thinking of the, the New York, uh, I think it was the New York times story. It might've been another publication uh about you know about someone who became an overnight millionaire they were not and they were not expecting it was probably in the coinbase ipo but it's not yeah i saw that yeah Um, yeah Yeah, it's yeah it's 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 there's a lot of tension there between those between those two well and i think uh, again like the the supply chain shortage i don't see uh the labor market (laughs) suddenly loosening up anytime over the next uh, 12 to 18 months or whatever. So in a tight labor market, th- th- this is going to continue to be an issue. Um, th- thank you, Jeremy. You can stick around as well, but I am going to move to one more thing. I want to I want to um, bring up another topic, Chris, and then if you want to bring up one after this. But yep. um, Go for it. I wanted to suggest, because a couple people suggested this, um, uh, Lanny suggested the Colonial Pipeline ransomware hack, to which I would say, you know, there was a time when ransomware uh, over the summer was like, you know, the story we were covering every day. Um, but then a lot of people also brought up um, <laughs> this week's news, um, the Log4j uh, thing. So they're, they're not exactly the same because one's a bug and the other is sort of the structural uh, change of, you know, all of a sudden ransomware being everywhere. Although uh, we're seeing um, all of the usual folks taking advantage of the bug. So um, I'll throw this to you, Chris, unless someone wants to raise their hand about this, but what do you think about our year of, and I've only been doing the show for four years, but this, this was the biggest year that I can remember for this sort of thing where there was a hack a day and, and ransomware and all that stuff. So, so what do you think about like the security being the 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 story of the year? I don't, I don't know if like security itself um, is is one of the. I mean, sec- let me let me put it a different way. I think one of the things that we're talking about, the broad thing that weaves a lot of this together, is insecurity actually, and the ways in which we either thought that we were secure or ways that we mm. were complacent or complicit in making assumptions about the durability of the reality that existed. And if I learned anything by being in the tech world, it's that, you know, things seem like they might sort of be plateauing or getting to a certain place of stasis. And then something will come along and sort of, you know, shake your, you know, your, your tree and you'll realize, oh, wow, like things either are not quite as they seem, or there was all this you know, stuff going on behind the scenes that I was not aware of that suddenly now is very relevant to a lot of other people. And it, there was like this kind of, kind of like 
what do they call them? It's like a sort of invisible sea swell that, I don't know, I, I'm just thinking about like when you wade out into like the ocean and you get sucked under or something. Anyways, you know, that well, kind of thing. It's, it, it, is, it, it is reminiscent of the supply chain thing where we kind of knew that there were these fragilities in the system. And so things like the fact that uh, with Log4j, like this, this is a, an open source thing that was, you know, very lightly maintained by a couple people doing it in their spare time and things like that. We've, we've known that that could come to bite us uh, eventually. Um, it, I, I, I think that it is similar to the, the, the supply chain thing in the sense that, like, we knew that these issues were baked into the system and could potentially come at some point. It just seems like everything's happening all at once. I mean, well, it's also like like the incentives. It's the distribution yeah. of these systems, yeah. and it's the increasing level of complexity. We want them to take on more and more responsibilities for us. We want them to be smarter and smarter. You know, like Apple, you know, finally is putting sort of smart home stuff into their, uh, you know, their keynotes and their films or whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. And that is a very insecure area, largely because we've been privileging, um, you know, ease of use and the ability to connect one device to another, et cetera. Like, we don't even know how exposed these things are. Um, in the name of, uh, you know, kind of accessibility. What you're saying is there's so many more vectors of uh, exposure now, and they're yes. they're only the surface area has yes, increased. Yes, yes, and and our expectations of these tools because of all the things that we were just talking about with whether it's the supply chain or whether it's like the need for automation or whether it's the great reconsideration and people just aren't available for work. We're having to create more systems that are much more self-serviceable. You know, I was thinking about this. Um, the other day, uh, I had to go charge my partner's Tesla. And in Oregon, uh, there is a, and forgive me if I'm wrong, I don't live in Oregon, but I've traveled through Oregon. And when you drive in Oregon, the, the, there are essentially there are gas station attendants that have to pump your car. Pump your car, pump the gas into the car, you know, like in New conventional. Jersey. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. In New Jersey. Jersey. Yes. <laughs> okay, great. So there are some places where there were laws that were created that, as I understand it, were designed to create more employment um, uh, by, you know, having gas station attendants. But in the, uh, the electronic, electronic, the electric car world, I don't know how or if that applies. Like, if you go to a Tesla supercharger station, can you pump your own electrons or not? And I thought you were going to tell me that there was someone that did that, like, when you stopped in Oregon. Please, please, someone <laughs> let us know if that's the case. Yeah. Or yeah. New Jersey, I guess. Right, right. Uh, but the, the point remains that if we can't hire people to do a bunch of these jobs that used to be kind of available because either people don't want them or because they're finding better things to do, suddenly now each of us becomes a lot more responsible for a lot more just, you know, tasks, everyday types of things. Um, you know, like I was also listening to another story about um, self-checkout and how that's sort of this, you know, now there's more labor that is being expected of us when we check out, even though the savings are really passed on to us. And it's leading to a lot more shoplifting because people kind of explain to themselves that, well, if I'm the one who's bagging my own groceries now, well, I should be able to take a cut of that. And so people are just kind of like, you know, stealing as a, as a rite of passage. So that may seem like, I don't know, where am I going with this? Well, that may seem like in terms of the, the law or in terms of the rules, like that is clearly like, you know, breaking those, but the shift in the relationship hasn't really been made explicit in that, in that context, right? Like there was no sort of consent granted to say, yes, actually I want, you know, I'm a libertarian and I want the ability to like do self-checkout for my grocery store. Like that isn't a conversation that we've had. It just was imposed upon us. 
And that's happening in lots of different places. And it's also true or happening in, uh, I think, the context of security. So, you know, I think that we're being exposed to more and more, I guess, insecurities across the system because we didn't quite even maybe think about or realize or anticipate what would happen if the fundamentals of the economy shifted without us taking the time to sort of redesign those systems that had been put in place for generations, let's say, without human participation or involvement. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's been a crazy couple of years <laughs> all around. <laughs> um, hey, do you want to, before we, because we're inevitably going to get to back to crypto and NFTs and stuff. Do you, yeah. do you have a topic that you think would be a candidate for a big story of the year before we get back to Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to get Jorge back here um, so we can come talk about um, the Board Apes Yacht Club. Um, there are a couple things um, that I thought were pretty interesting this year, um, and it sort of does link to some of these things that we've been talking about. You know, one, I think, um, and this is actually brought up by Rob Tanner, um, he pointed out that Apple's chip, silicon system on a chip, is a game changer. And I think in a lot of ways it is. You know, this is a, I believe the strategy was sort of announced or sort of put into motion, I don't know, five, ten years ago um, for Apple to move on to its own silicon. And at least now, as the proud owner of a new MacBook Pro with Apple Silicon, like that process has kind of happened. And so now Apple really is kind of unleashed in what they can do and what they can sell into and creating this entire vertical stack of products that I think we've only just barely begun to see the the fruits of. So I think that moment is a really big deal, um, and it's going to change the nature of who is competitive in the tech ecosystem at large. You yeah, know, now and, it's like NVIDIA and Apple and others. And let me let me um, uh, bring up a point that he that Rob makes in his question that he submitted, where he, he's making the point that obviously, you know, Apple historically wins markets. Um, you know, by coming in with better design, higher end, that sort of thing, but also better experience. And so he, he specifically mentions like we, we assume an AR headset is coming maybe as soon as next year. Um, and then there's, you know, the, the Apple car and things like that. And, and one of the points that he, he makes is that to what degree Apple having this you know, silicon sort of dominance that seems to be generations ahead of, of other folks. Mm, yeah. Um, will that allow them to do like when they, you know, when they came out with the iPhone and it was like, you know, so completely different than anything else that was on the market. Like, would they, when they come out with their AR glasses, will it be like, Oh my God, that, that really is a game changer. That really is different. Will, will it be thin enough that people would actually, you know, want to wear it all day? Would would the battery life be good enough that you could wear it all day? Like, could potentially this sort of um, chip dominance that they have, or this head start in their in their in their silicon, allow them to do that again, like they did with the iPhone and the iPad and things like that? Where it's like when they come out with their product first, it's going to blow away. All of the other experiments, as I called it this week, you know, especially with with headsets and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't mean to say yes to cut you off, but like, um, it is a good question. Uh, I think that there still is a question about the actual use cases for augmented reality, you know, vision, you know, goggles, glasses, whatever you want to call them, um, and is it universal enough? You know. Um, I don't know what the percentage of people who wear glasses are, you know, around mm, the world, mm-hmm. but it's probably less than the number of people who have uh, a 
a bare wrist to to put a device around, you know. And yeah. so, if you think about the progression of the Apple Watch, you know, I was, I was thinking about this, and you know, you're going to hate me because you know of your line of work and your business. But I find that my Apple Watch, although it's a great you know uh, health. Uh, tool, it also kind of saves me from like the podcast tax mm, where mm-hmm. I can skip ads. Mm-hmm. And so I'm paying a premium to essentially remove um, an interruption or content that is not relevant to me. Right. What happens when you put glasses on? Now you're moving through your day with the, whether it's the notification system or the identity system or whatever it is that's only exclusive to Apple. Is that sufficient? Will it be good enough? Will it interoperate with? You know, the metaverse with all these things that we're talking about that people want to build for where there's new assumptions based on a, a much more cooperative you know, model of interoperability and creating abundance in space versus what Apple tends to do, which is to try to own the entire stack and keep people within those universes. You know, what are the other big stories that I think has been undercovered? Um, and I don't know if it's because of salience or because of, you know, we're just not in those worlds. But um, I think Tesla is a fascinating company, not just because of their cars and because of the um, the interface of the cars, but because of the connection to the overall Tesla power grid and to the um, the Powerwall units that they're also selling. You know, and I, I might have mentioned this before, but I've sort of done some sleuthing in the uh, Tesla iOS app. And there's a lot of stuff being built in there related to just being inside of a power, I don't know, um, environment or context. And I guess what I'm trying to say or what I, what I mean by that is that Tesla is building out this network of charging stations and they're building these batteries essentially that go into your house. And so if there's interruptions in power accessibility, now you have your own power that's off the grid and you can put power back on the grid. Um, and that strategy, that piece is in some ways almost, and I don't want to like overstate this, but could be parallel to Apple Silicon in terms of why that company is so, you know, um, I don't know, uniquely positioned in the marketplace to persist. So if you're evaluating an Apple car, you might just evaluate it based on, you know, car, car stuff. You know, does it drive well? Like, are, you know, does it even have a steering wheel? Is it an entertainment place? You know, those kind of, when you sit in the device and you you have that experience from that perspective. But the Tesla approach seems to be more about the network and about building out this, you know, system of superchargers as well as home homes that have these power bricks in them. And so battery technology is one of the other big undersold stories, I think, of 2021 mm-hmm. um, and that I think is very important to this mix, you know. And the supply chain thing sort of leads into that because of the just-in-time nature of that. And now we're saying, no, actually put more intelligence back into, I mean, just distribute it, decentralize it, move it away from what Apple has been doing for like the last 20 years. But so, by the way, I think I, I'm going to do a story about um, battery tech tomorrow because um, there's one I've been sitting on that we might be on the on the verge of some new great battery tech. But um, just to just to wrap this question up, because Rob does say way, Rob, that. Rob Tanner is actually here. So oh, Rob, I, Rob. We can bring him up. Yeah, so Rob, one more point. Uh, oh, Rob, you're here. Oh, you've been here yeah. the whole time. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I have. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, then I'm going to say one thing, and then and then you 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 rip. But um, one more point that you made is that what, what Chris is describing also is about owning the, the, the full stack. And, um, you know, like, you make the point that one of the reasons that, um, you know, the Apple Watch won is because competitors are reliant on other folks like Qualcomm that maybe can't come through with the components that make a competitive product and things like that. So that again, if Apple controls their destiny, Apple can control their product and they're not reliant 
on Intel anymore or people like that. You know, it, they can they can do the product exactly the way they want, and and that could be again a a, a big differentiator that's that's more meaningful than anything. Yeah, so I, I had a slightly different point to the way you you mostly got what I was saying. But if you think about where Apple is mm. one of the parts with their big innovations, they were always early and they had you know better industrial design and amazing UI innovations. Think you know the click wheel, the iPhone touchscreen. But it was never really about the internal. Um, in the early days of smartphones, they had essentially slightly different, but essentially the same ARM chips as Android was using, you know, hardened by a different band of of CPU engineers. But essentially the same. It was never about better performance. But what we've seen in the last year, which is a little mystifying to a lot of tech watchers because the performance they've added to their iOS devices is almost not needed in those devices. It's a bit more profound on the Mac where they now have this new kind of, you know, they've historically had, you wanted Mac OS or Windows, but now they have Mac OS and better performance, vastly better performance. But if you think about that better performance and especially performance per watt, which is if you're really enjoying your battery life on your, on your M1 Mac, kind of what it's all about. When you think about moving to glasses, now, I have to, as a disclaimer, I'm not really sold on glasses as a mass market, phone replacing, displacing technology. But contingent on the fact that I might be wrong, if you think that is going to be a mass market thing, um, Apple's performance for what, which has kind of come out of nowhere, um, whether it's streaming from the phone to the glasses or whether it's on the glasses um, with the limited battery space is going to be kind of profound. And I think maybe for the first time we're going to see Apple I'm sure all their traditional design and technology software integrations will be there, but actually have a new advantage that they historically haven't had, which is just vastly superior performance in a device where battery life and performance for what will be absolutely fundamental. That's what I was saying at the at the beginning of this question. And and by the way, I I if uh, you know I accuse Chris of being pilled into things, I totally <laughs> I totally believe that ten years from now um, wearables will replace. Uh, uh, smartphones and uh, I don't know what the wearables will end up looking like and things like that, but um, yeah, I, 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 and I do think that you're right that like aside from you know you know the software and the hardware going together because we make both, but that that concept that they can do greater efficiency like that's going to be the key for something that you're going to theoretically wear on your. I mean, I think this is this is exactly like the right point, and it's similar to what I was saying about. Tesla and its its battery prowess. Like I don't know enough about battery tech either, but I know it's very very important to unlocking the types of products that people actually want to you know build and design and create. And actually, I think Brian, you had mentioned one of the experimental. I, I don't know if it was um, um, a glasses product by Oppo. Yeah, Oppo Oppo came out with one this week. It's the N Real is the one that I've always been talking about. Um, for a couple years now, they're the closest because even though it, it was still a wired product that you had to attach to an Android smartphone, it it, it felt like you were wearing regular glasses on your face. Um, right. But the reason why I brought it up is because if I recall correctly, it has like a two or three hour battery life. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like, this is what I think, you know, Rob is suggesting and that I yes. think is so important to think about the future of these things. And that actually influenced like how I customized my MacBook Pro. You know, I spent a lot more than I really wanted to. Um, but I was thinking, okay, are the applications over the next three to four years when I'm owning this computer more or less likely to become more 
compute intensive. You know, when we're talking about the metaverse, we're talking about 3D environments, we're talking about game-like experiences, you know, we're talking about lots of stuff constantly syncing and talking to other peripherals and stuff like that. All of that's going to require more power, more CPU, uh, more powerful GPU, and power management to go along with it. So I think Rob is totally on point, um, you know, that it's going to enable as a... Let's say rather than trying to only design for the thermals and for battery power, Apple will have a huge advantage because they're kind of, by being verticalized, able to ignore some of the restrictions that other design teams will have to deal with because they're not vertically integrated. Right. If you believe that glass is like the next big thing, um, which I don't, but um, you know, I'm probably wrong, um, then I think you should be buying Apple stock because what mm. we've seen the last year is there's been this jump, this prodigious jump they've made, which doesn't even seem to be necessary really for their current product. A little bit it is, but you know, not really. But for the for the glasses, it's really going to be key. So if you do believe that, you know, I would suggest. Well, for any Apple. any augmented reality application, you need a lot of compute. And actually, the spatial guys, if you guys want to, you know, jump in here, um, like all that stuff takes an order of magnitude more uh, computation than current 2D web browsing capabilities. You know, like, I don't know if you've used the, uh, what is it called? I don't know if it's like the lookup or something. Google Maps has a mode where you can go into augmented reality mode and kind of overlay that view, um, you know, onto uh, the surface of, of what you're seeing, essentially, you know, through your phone. You got to imagine that Apple Maps is a key part of Apple's um, plans you know, both for the headsets, like, you know, for walking around and sort of interacting with the world, as well as in the car. And that those two things are probably going to work together in a, you know, in a way that, at least to me, seems like it's going to need to be seamless. You know, as it is now, it's interesting. I will be listening to, you know, music or a podcast or whatever on Spotify. I get into uh, the Tesla and instantly my music sort of transfers and does that, does that whole thing. But then I don't have CarPlay. And so there's kind of a, a, a loss of continuity between those things. And I think Apple, what Apple's building for is a world in which you live inside of essentially this Apple metaverse, but is actually like the real world. And there are just slivers of the digital that sort of feed into it. But you need the right sort of a compute and, and power, better efficiency, well, better okay. efficiency to do that. So one of the things I would say to that point is, is when you, if you look back on a certain time in technology and say, what was the antiquated version of that? So for example, in the VR portion, when I was first using the Oculus Quest 2 to do spatial stuff, you know, I'd put it on my head and go into spatial and I would get two hours from, from startup mm -hmm. to battery dead, right? Wow. Maybe two yeah. and a half hours, depending on what I was doing. But then I, that was because there was a 2300 milliamp battery, I guess that is what you would say it is. But then I went and I bought a, an anchor uh, 10,000 milliamp little battery pack, right? And then I just attached it to the back of the headset with a magnet and they have the thing for it. Suddenly I went from two hours to five and a half hours that I could spend in the wow. headset. Yeah. So there was the point where I actually had exceeded my ability to tolerate being in there. So over time, you'll you'll be able to get to the point where you can spend that much time in it. So are we are we going to be willing to plug something into the glasses? You know what I mean? Just to wear them to have that full day experience. Because when you realize it's just a battery pack on your hip, you think to yourself, it's not a big deal, thin little wire running right up, whatever it may be, right? That's that's when we're going to look back and say when the battery technology took off. Remember when we used to have wires connected to our to our mm -hmm. glasses, you know, mm -hmm. but it, we're going to evolve to that. But I think you make great points talking about whether or not we'll have the chips to do it. <laughs> 
That's it's it's, it's really interesting. Um, what like in terms of so one of the things that I think is just worthwhile to think about when it comes to these classes is like the use case and whether or not we can assume that in the future, you know, I'm I'm I wear glasses, um, you know, for vision. If everyone is going to wear glasses all the time and it's just sort of like normal, it's like, you know, many of us have adopted or adapted to wearing masks all the time as a necessity. Will it right. become the kind of thing where we just make an assumption that everyone's wearing glasses all the time, even if you don't need them for vision? Or is it more like VR where you sort of augment your, you know, your vision for a run or for going in, you know, for driving someplace or something like that? And it's something where you wear for two or three hours and then you do the recharge, the fast recharge, and then you go on. Right. Yeah, I got, I got a good... Uh one come back on that one. So I just recently went up to New York City. I live in Pennsylvania, so I go up to New York City often enough, but I'm not there enough to really completely navigate the city well, mm, right? Yeah. So there's still that moment where I walk out of a door of a building and I'm turned around, right? Yeah. I don't know where yeah. to go. So yeah, I pull my phone time. out. Right. I pull my phone out and I go to AR mode on my Google Maps and it's telling me where to go. And I can look at it and I get exactly where I need to be. If I have those glasses on my face and I walk out that door, it doesn't even stop you in your tracks. You just start walking and realize, oh, I got to turn around and go the other way and start walking. So you're going to have that. So now what happens? I have those glasses on and I'm walking through the city and it's telling me where I want to go and I'm talking to it like it's Google Assistant, right? And I'm saying where I want to go. Now you get to the point where you walk into somebody's building. Well, they've programmed an experience when you come into their building. Now they've mapped out their entire room. You walk into the Nike room. Let's say you have your virtual pet that's following you the whole time because whenever you look over and down to your right. Who doesn't have a virtual pet? Exactly. Right, right. So so then you have your virtual dragon next to you, but now you walk into the Nike store. And when you get into the Nike store, it's been mapped out. And now all of a sudden your little dragon jumps up onto the table and runs across it in your eyes looking through it. So you start having those experiences, those moments and places. That's what's going to compel people to wear the glasses well, all the time. And not only that, and, and I'm going to use two examples I think that I've used before on the show, but okay. So number one, um, Right now, if I'm, you know, in line or I'm on the train or I'm doing whatever where I've got time to kill, I'm reaching in my pocket, I'm swiping up and I'm going through and I'm, but what if you didn't have to do that? What if at all times you could scroll through Instagram as you're doing whatever, as you're talking to someone boring and they never know that you're doing something else while they do it? Like the, like I said to Chris last week, where why would foldable phones ever become a thing, it's because, well, you don't always need the screen as big as it is. It's just that that's the only way that we can get screens right now is to have it be, you know, fully the, the, the full screen size. So that's number one, that there will come a time where it's like, oh, God, I had to reach into my pocket and, and do whatever to, like, relieve boredom, where I can just, like, literally, like, my eye twitches and I can, I can relieve boredom. Number two, you're talking about coming to New York. This is the story that I've told before. In 2002 was the first time I ever came out to Brooklyn, and I got completely lost, and I couldn't find the train station, and I walked around for an hour and a half before I found the train station, because this is before smartphones, there is no Google Maps, and I literally remember having the thought that someday I'll have GPS in my pocket, and this will never happen again. In your pocket. So think, right. so think about how you can't imagine not knowing where you are on the planet Earth these days because you have a supercomputer in your pocket, in that same way, there will come a day when it's like, I don't know anything. It's impossible for me not to know anything. And also, I don't have to reach into my pocket to find out. It's already in a heads-up display in front of me at all times, you know? Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, 
Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free, whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a limited time. Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. I did just notice there was a story in The Verge um, from yesterday about IBM and Samsung um, essentially claiming that their new chip design could lead to a week-long battery life on phones. So I think this is going to be a bigger topic. Um, Yes, hopefully. Efficiency, um, whether it's you know specific systems on a chip or chips that allow for different types of processing to be done much more efficiently, because now we know what some of the AI models are going to look like and what they need to be, is certainly an area to watch for. Um, oh, that's nice. I worked for IBM for 14 years. Oh, okay. amazing. Um, I, so that, that's a pinned tweet if you guys want to check that out. Um, I'm not glad. Okay. Chris, uh, we, we, we should we should end with Web3 because I know that has yeah, to be the, the biggest story of the year, right? I, I, I mean, personally for me, it's it's got to be the most transformational um, area that I think at the beginning of the year, I was like, uh, what is the, and I Okay, wait, I have a timeline yeah. for you. Okay, okay, because great. remember, 18 yeah. months ago, like I, when the pandemic struck, I remember doing a story where I was like, hey, isn't this when crypto was supposed to take over? <laughs> and it was like down at, uh, yes. Bitcoin was down at like $4,000 a coin or whatever. <laughs> um, and so th- I remember thinking, oh, oh is, is that fad over? And then I checked the timeline on this. 
um, I minted that that podcast NFT in February, oh, right. which yes. means that I must be have, worth millions by now. I must have started hearing about <laughs> NFTs in a major way a couple months before from um, the Coin Talk guys and and whatever, whatever, because it was a couple months where it was starting to bubble to the surface. But then you know, and and the way things work now. So then, early in the year, February, March was the first big NFT wave, at least to to normies like me. And then it sort of died down, and it was like, oh, fad again. But no, it came roaring back. So um, NFTs is what I'm talking about. But then, obviously, what we're talking about is the whole Web three idea and how that's evolved this year, and it's seemingly uh, unstoppable at this point. I mean, it seems to be, and it's not just, I guess I want to be careful about over-prescribing like success in a certain way that's going to be mm, only about the way things are right now. Like it's a mistake to overemphasize the selling of JPEGs and uh, that trope. That's an accessible story that the media knows how to tell because it's replicating something that already exists in the world. The things that are going to be interesting are the things that are sort of known adjacent you know, so so membership NFTs are like, okay, there has been, you know, membership and loyalty programs for a long time. But what happens when you can actually weave in, like, programming of, let's say, gamification models into an NFT such that when you reach certain levels, that unlocks other, you know, whether it's metaverse worlds or other doors or, you know, things in the real world or whatever it is. Um, that's a creative space that I think we need to be really thinking about and anticipating for 2022. I think that's where it gets very interesting and there's just so much stuff going like it really is like literally like a Cambrian explosion of different ideas and people trying things, throwing stuff at the wall. There's a lot of, I don't know, things that look similar, that feel similar, but are slightly different. Um, and I think it's those folks who are going to stay focused, who build great user experiences and products, who stay connected to their community, who are in dialogue and sharing what they're doing constantly are probably going to benefit the most. Um, this year, I think, I don't know, it was, like Web3 in some ways was such a saving grace because there's so much shit going on in the world. Um, and yet the Agreed. positivity of the Web3 community, the NFT community, the art world and developer ecosystems coming together, that's something that needed to happen for a long time. And um, I'm I'm very excited, I guess, to see sort of, you know, where that goes from here. Um, yeah, you know? it's going to be huge. I mean, the access to opportunity is something that people want you know, the day they leave, you know, their parents' home, you know, is I, I do I have access to opportunity, the nature of going to college and and getting an education and learning things to gain access to opportunity. So I feel like Web3 is, is opening up the doors, taking away some of those silos that we've grown so accustomed to and saying, listen, here's a space where you can move wherever you want and you can be early enough because I was around for the dot-com boom. So I, when I was there, I mean, I was babysitting servers for Y2K. So for me, it was one of those things where I understood that when you're really early to something, it's just the difference is, is just knowing more than the majority of the population around you and then getting in and then seeing where you could do it. I saw people do startups. I went the route of getting the corporate job and, and finding security. But I, I think that Web3 is really, as everyone adopts it, I mean, we're really early. I mean, this isn't getting in at the ground floor. This is getting in while the blueprint's being yeah, drawn yeah, Seriously. <laughs> we're still figuring out where we're going to put the building. Right, right. Yes, exactly. I want a secret room over there, and you get to draw it in. <laughs> and let me let me address some of the the skepticism because I feel like you know we we've, we've talked about this too about the it's sort true. of culture war that's going on around this. And and one of the things that I think, no matter what where you come down on that, is 
Um, someone made the point recently that it really doesn't matter because all of this is too big to fail at this point. So that even if individual things don't work out, individual ideas, some things are fads, some things, you know, don't make it or something. There are enough people and enough energy and enough smart people interested in this that it doesn't matter. Um, because somehow this energy is going to create something new and go in some direction. And it might not be in the shape that we're seeing now, um, but that's that's the point. It doesn't have to yeah, be. Yeah, you know, so just to build on your point, Brian, like one of the things that feels different um, and, and that feels, I don't know if it's like an imperative or sort of an inevitability, but there are certain assumptions that went into Web2 business models, you know, one of which was just, that there wasn't transparency. It wasn't like enforced. And so things were happening to you as a user of these systems, you know, and this is, I think why there's so much angst and, and there, you know, we didn't even talk about one of the bigger stories this year is all the, mm, the threats of regulation and laws against social yeah, media and social yeah, networks yeah. and all of that. Like, it's like, almost like, Oh my God, I'm so bored of that. But it's important because of what people feel ha- has been done to them or done in their names on these platforms that they contributed so much to, and they really have been exploited. And so there is a shift and a change. We talked about this when it comes to you know labor and work and what the economy should be about and for and what it should do you know for people versus to people. And when you're working with blockchain technology, the fact that it's transparent and the fact that you can inspect these things and it is scrutable, it's not inscrutable changes the nature or potentially changes the nature of behavior in a way that for those who embrace it, it I don't, like you can't behave in the way that sort of got you successful in the Web2 space or context. I, I don't know how else to put it, but just Carter there's so much machinery. The Go ahead. That's right. You can't cook the books. Yeah, the I agree. Well, and I, I've seen... No, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. and then I'll, I'll jump. The, the, what I was going to say is, is I've already seen a change that's fundamental shift. So I myself, as an artist, when I'm selling NFTs, it's different than selling it in the real world as a painting. And but because I can get royalties, because I can get all these things down the line that change everything for me, I don't have to give up fifty percent to a gallery. I can just sell it myself. But the best part about it is the fact that the growth opportunities are all on you to achieve. So if you find yourself in a situation where you can't make it out here in this but you can reach out into a, into a space where it's being led by artists. And that's the thing that I'm most impressed with right now is, is, you know, it's almost like another renaissance. We are in a situation where we're seeing efforts being led by creatives rather than the old school of, of way of doing things. And I think that's profound. And that's maybe why people are so willing to reward it and keep it going because they know who's benefiting from it. Well, and, and the, the point I was going to make is sort of similar to the point I was making earlier, which is that, um, like, I think one of the reasons people, uh, push back on Web3 maximalism is that it's, you know, certain people in the community are like, well, this is going to change everything. This is going to replace everything. And it might, but it doesn't have to. Like, you know, when the, when the web came around, we all knew it was going to eventually change TV and movies. We didn't know that it would take the form of Netflix and apps in a smartphone right. and things like that. It did eventually change things. It just maybe didn't change things in the way that people thought 25 years ago. Ben, uh, Benedict Evans, who we've talked about a lot recently, was on um, Alex Kantrowitz's podcast, the most recent episode. And he was like, um, 
he he made the point that like I think cannabis is going to be a huge business. Do I think cannabis is going to replace the alcohol industry? No, but it doesn't have to. That's not the point, right? right. So that uh, you know, um I uh, there's so much energy here and and a lot of people are like, well, it's going to replace this and it's going to completely transform that. And some of those things it will. Some things will be completely transformed or or maybe even killed by web3. But um that doesn't mean that that has to be the way it's going to evolve. We don't know. It's so early is is the point that everyone's yeah. making. Yeah. You can make your own contracts now. When I would sell a piece of art, no one knew what to do with the original on the backside. Here's the NFT. What do I do with the original? Well, how about this? How about I write a contract on what happens to the original? I sign it and then I scan it, send it to you. You print it out, you sign it, you scan it, you send it back to me and then I mint it on the blockchain. There it is, a contract that's out there. We're talking about societal utility that also takes form. The instant that we can vote on the blockchain, there'll never be a rigged election ever again, period. Love the enthusiasm, and I am so curious to see how we get there. Um, one thing that I wanted to, to build on what you just said, and I think this is also very important in terms of how, and I want to use the expression, the rubber meets the road, but in some ways, that's sort of what I'm thinking, um, I've I've purchased several NFTs related to spirits, uh, specifically like whiskey or wine or things like that. And you know, when I bought it, you know, there's a there's a, there's an NFT, there's a piece of artwork uh, which is part of the NFT, and then there's like a physical product in the real world. And of course, some of the questions that I get from people because we're thinking about this purely from a digital perspective is, well, if you drink the whiskey or you drink the wine, you know, does that mean that the NFT is like not valuable anymore? And I'm like, well, kind of like, just think about the, the NFT as a kind of receipt, as a kind of, you know, evidence that's publicly tracked that as opposed to getting some piece of paper that you throw out or you lose or gets, you know, burned in some house fire, it's part of this, you know, immutable ledger that you can always refer to and go back to. And if I ever choose to sell or pass on this, you know, spirit or whiskey that I've, I've acquired, um, I have the, uh, some provenance for that. And I can yep. point to it and I can show you because it's in my wallet that I actually, in fact, own it. And the thing that I'm selling you is more likely to be the real thing as opposed to, you know, some not real thing. And Very so true. It's those moments where it's not absolutism. It's not saying that because I have this NFT, this product that I'm giving you is absolutely guaranteed to be real. But at least I at one point really did buy the thing that that NFT represents. And so when I sell you this, you have a higher likelihood of trust than in the, the previous world, which to your point, and the reason why I bring this up is because it relates directly to this question of voting and whether that voting happens in DAOs or whether it happens in Congress DAO or whatever type of you know U.S. voting system you want, there is right. a record that we've all agreed to look to for the source yep. of the truth of uh, an election of sorts that just happened. Some decision that required collective action or collective choice, and we can go and we can look at the, the receipts, essentially, because they're all there. So right. that creates a new set of assumptions for how we can actually operate and function. So Totally agree. That, that totally makes sense. And that's actually it's it's going from you know the PFPs to then it's going to go to traditional art and then the store of value. Then it's going to go to now like the DeFi tokenomics and it's brands 
then it's going to go to societal utility. And I think that's the evolution of the NFT is, is how can we incorporate it to legitimize things, to yank out the control that people can exert on things by throwing money, by lobbying, by doing all these things. You can't do that anymore. And I think that's what's exciting about it. And that's probably the only resistance you know, it's going to get is from those who won't benefit from it, right? It's the equivalent of the, the petroleum you know, the fossil fuel company buying up the patent for the water, you know, and en engine, you know what I mean? Like you're going to have people try and well, stop. I, I want to be clear. I want to be careful because just because we have NFT in the blockchain doesn't mean that human behavior is going to change overnight. Correct. There's still going to be Correct. a lot of really bad stuff. So I think, you know, we can modulate the enthusiasm and suggest that, look, there are these systems that if we understand them and we teach people about how they're intended to work and we, create more digital literacy, then it can actually lead to some of those more positive outcomes. But okay, we, we're sort of on that Web3 so far, and that's not too much what I want to do. So Brian, you want to wrap this up? Uh, yes. So, um, oh, actually, okay. Yeah, I'll you, wrap it up. Yes. Yeah, sorry. And sorry, then, you can't be... okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah go no, ahead. No. Okay. So, uh, one thing that, uh, I wanted to share with, with this group here, um, primarily the live group, cause we're not quite sure when this is going to go out, but, um, if you watch for, um, in the New York times, which yes, is a centralized, you know, it's not a DAO of any sort, um, but you know, is a paper of record of sorts. Um, there is going to be a story, as we understand it, um, that Brian and I will be in um, covering social audio. So watch for that in the print and online edition. Literally, um, literally talking about these Twitter spaces that we're doing right now. Yes, so. exactly. So it's a little meta. So look, yeah, look for that. that. But uh, I'm, I'm trying to re reclaim the meta the handle. Anyways, um, so that's coming out. And um, I don't know. I guess, you know, Brian, is this our last um, space for the year? We yeah, for sure. Speaker? Because, okay. yeah, I'm, we're going to take some time off. Taking some time off. Um, but <laughs> I, and I, I probably will release this next week and use it as like the, the last show I do before Christmas or something like that. So I want to, yeah. I want to take the opportunity uh, to treat this as the end of the year show, even though I'll be doing shows all next week and <laughs> all the way up to New Year's. But yeah. um, number one, I want to say this. Um, this show, the, the Tech Meme Experience, is something that evolved this year that Chris and I didn't plan to do, um, and it just sort of has become this thing that we very much enjoy and, and very much value. And so, number one, one of the things that I want to say, um, Chris, I, I said to you not too long ago that like I, I end up talking to you more than basically any of my friends now. <laughs> Um, and so I want I want to thank you personally for making the Tech Meme Ride Home experience happen. Um, like I I I think I th this show is would be nothing without you. I by doing this show with you, I feel like you've become one of my best friends. So I just want to thank you for having like <laughs> for for being really good at it and and helping me uh, hopefully make a good show uh, when we when we do this every week. Um, so I'm not going to pause because that'll give you an opportunity to reciprocate. And I don't want you to do that. Um, I also want to say to everybody listening that, um, you know, we're coming up on the four year anniversary in March of the tech meme ride home podcast in general. Um, on average now, 60,000 people listen to this show every day. And I always want to, I try hard to remind myself of that, that cause that blows my mind. So I always want to take the opportunity when I have it to thank you all for, uh, putting me in your head every day. And it, it's unbelievable. And I'm incredibly privileged that you all do that. 
Um, and so I'm just saying at the end of 2021, thank you all for, uh, for listening every day. I love you all. Well, thank you, Brian. And because you did pause, I'm going to thank you on behalf of those 60,000 listeners, because I too was one of those 60,000 listeners for a long time. And through the entire pandemic, I was listening to you every day. And that is what got me through that time. Of course, when I had disagreements, I wanted to talk to you. And that is what led to this show. So in some ways, this is my own catharsis. And so I appreciate you being a good sport, putting up with me and uh, going on this journey. And um, as well, Thanks to everybody who was who has turned in. Yes, um, it since I don't know when did we start this, and was it March or was it February? I think it right? was February ish, and yeah, or January, February, yeah, because we were on Clubhouse yeah. for at least four or five or six of those before we moved yeah. to Twitter, so. all the way through the demise of Clubhouse, and now back to Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon? Too soon? <laughs> Anyways, um, all right, everybody, thank you gonna, once again. We're going to get you to do it in spatial. Uh, we're going to get you to do this in spatial too. Uh, well, uh, next year. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. 50 people. All right. Um, great. I do want to also thank, I want to thank Chris O'Brien, who's here, Christian Hernandez, Gage uh, Milton, Jeremy Diamond, who's here, John Kowalchuk, Jorge Vidal, Clay, Lanny Ziering, and Rob Tanner. Emil, Emil Protoliski as well yes. in the room. Always here. Folks. Yes. Um, for submitting ideas and suggestions for J- the show. JC Pennies. Um, I always like to shout out JC. Yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, Morgan. I mean, like, you know, Remy, we've got a whole bunch of great folks who uh, tune up, turn in, or the opposite, whatever. Anyways, thanks, everybody. Uh, we will talk to you in 2022. Later. Thanks. Take care, guys. Ciao. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.